This week at Hope Point. Folks, the, the chasm for us is such a chilling reminder that there are a million ways for you to live your life. That's the warning of the chasm. That's what the chasm is screaming to us today. That though you may be mistaken because you live in a world where everything can be taken back, anything you buy on Amazon can be returned, any plate that comes out of the kitchen can be sent back in if you don't like what they put on it, any tattoo can be removed, a marriage can be annulled. If you got the new iOS update, you can even take back a text that you sent, but there's no take back on your life. We're so glad to have you join us for today's message. We pray that it would challenge and encourage you to applaud God, follow Christ, and live on mission. Let's listen now as Caleb speaks to us from God's Holy Word. It's great to be back with you again today. My name is Caleb Crittenden. I'm one of the pastors here at Oak Point. And last time that I shared with you, we, we looked at the Old Testament at an ailment that was pointed out about God's people uh, that I called spiritual amnesia. I don't know if you remember that or not, but we looked at the ways that God's people had been forgetful. They had missed it. They had short-term memory loss when it came to the things of God. And as we look at the New Testament today in the book of Luke, uh, the physician of the New Testament, the beloved physician, Dr. Luke, uh, he points out another ailment of the religious people, and that is one of blindness, spiritual blindness, uh, and inability to see things clearly and to see the things that mattered. And really, he's only writing down the words of the, the real, the, the, the great physician who uh, diagnosed this problem, this problem of blindness, as Jesus addresses the, the wealthy uh, Pharisees in chapter 16 of Luke. He would call them lovers of money. Uh, throughout the book of Matthew, he would call them blind guides because of the fact that they had been so blinded, so misdirected by the things that had blessed them, their, their riches, their wealth, and also their knowledge and understanding of God. And so he says to them in chapter 16, these pretty harsh words, um, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts, for what is exalted before men is an abomination to the Lord. Shocking words to the religious elites that while they've been exalted by men for their riches, which many would have looked at their riches as like the sign of God's blessing. You're rich because you've been faithful to God. You're wealthy because God loves you. And they'd look at their status as the Pharisees, these leaders of the law who, who kept the law, at least by appearances. And, and these would be men who were exalted, who were held up. And yet these stern words from Jesus that while they may be blessed by the people, they were cursed by the one whose opinion mattered most, the Lord. Now, he would sandwich these words in between two parables about money. Uh, there's lots of stories through the New Testament about money, but here in chapter 16, there are two, and we're going to look at the latter of the two today, starting in verse 19 of chapter 16. This is the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. These two men that had very different circumstances, very different lives, and money and, and, and wealth played a big part in the story. I saw a quote from the Wall Street Journal of all places. It was an anonymous quote, but uh, it says this about money. It's an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and a universal provider for everything except happiness. And this is what we'll see in the parable today as we look closely at this man who had all the money he needed to purchase anything he could ever crave or long for 
except for access into the kingdom of God uh, and eternal rest in heaven. Uh, so yeah, also happiness, I would go with that. So let's look at, at his story today, beginning in verse 19, and we're gonna just contrast a couple stages of these two men's existences. First, let's look at their life, how their life looked different. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. A couple things you can see in these few verses that show just the length Jesus went to to contrast these two characters. First, just look at the way that the rich man is dressed. He's wearing purple, purple garments, and in this time, purple uh, would be just seen as the highest of the high for the royals, the elites to wear, uh, not just because of what the color symbolized, but because of how difficult it was to produce this type of dye. It's called Tyrian dye, uh, would make purple garments, and they got this dye from a pretty unusual place. They got it from snails, and when a snail died, it secreted this little gland that produced a purple color. And so, you know, if you killed enough snails, you could collect those glands and you could have a purple shirt um, or garment. And, and so the, cra- the thing about it is, is if that wasn't hard enough, it, it would take you, just to get one gram of purple dye, you'd have to have 8,000 snails. So this is just Jesus's way of saying the garments that this man wore came at a great cost. I mean, he is not just wealthy, he is above and beyond wealthy to dress as he is. And even his, his linens, says he wore fine linen. Your linen would be you know, the material for your undergarments. So again, here we kind of see some sarcasm in Jesus. He's like going over the top to say this dude was rich. He's basically saying he wears purple clothes and even his boxers are designer basically what he's saying here about, about the rich man. And you contrast that to what the poor man Lazarus is wearing. Well, only description we get is that he's covered with sores. So if being poor is not enough, now also he has these, these sores on his body that make him unclean, unfit to be a part of society, a castaway, so to speak, which is why he finds himself placed at the gate of this rich man. You see a big contrast here. Also look at their, their, uh, the, way, the things that they do, the way they eat. We get three words to describe how the rich man eats. Like it's just exaggerate, exaggerate, exaggerate. He doesn't just eat, he feasts and he does so sumptuously and he also does it every day. So it's, again, it's just an extreme exaggeration of how much this man has to consume. This isn't just a weekend at Golden Corral. This is like day in, day out. He's just stuffing his face. Meanwhile, Lazarus is covered with sores at his gate, just begging for a few crumbs. Crumbs that would likely not have any chance of making it to him because of the dogs that are there licking his sores that probably get to it first. Uh, these are probably the rich man's guard dogs. And, uh, and so the, the, there's a stark contrast between these two men, both in how they, they look and what they have access to. But there's another pretty big difference about them as well, and it's the fact that one of them receives a name. And this would be a really unusual feature for a parable. These stories that Jesus would tell, there's 20 of these parables in Luke, and and there's several others in the other Gospels, and no other parable names a character. Only Lazarus. Not even the rich man who's in this story gets a name. Just Lazarus. Not the prodigal son or 
the dishonest manager or the good Samaritan even. Nobody gets a name but Lazarus. This led some people to believe that maybe this wasn't a parable. Maybe this was a, a true story. Maybe Jesus was speaking from something he observed actually happened. I don't think that's the case. The, the structure follows Jesus' way of telling a story, of telling a parable. And there's definitely some things that you're going to see in the story that seem a little more, fi- more figurative than, than, than literal. So uh, suffice it to say, it, it is a parable from what we can gather. And yet he names Lazarus. Why does Lazarus, of all people, get a name? Jesus has already answered that because what is exalted among men is an abomination to the Lord. And this rich man who was a celebrity to all the people around him had this big gate where a homeless man is dropped for help. Surely he has a name, but not in Jesus' story. And the untouchable one, the one that no one wants to care for, the one that can't even get a crumb from the table, Jesus says, I know your name. I am near to you. I see you. I'm reminded of what the psalmist says in chapter 34. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Jesus is communicating loud and clear what, what you can justify yourself before men, but what is an abomination to, uh, what, is, what is exalted before men is an abomination to the Lord. I see you, Lazarus. I am near to you. I will care for you. But another interesting thing about the name, it's, uh, it's, a, it's from the, the Greek word Eleazar, sorry, from the Hebrew word Eleazar, which means the one whom God helped. Nobody else helps, but God helps. And we're going to see that take place as the story goes on. So uh, just interesting here. Not only does he get a name, of all names to be given, he gets the name Lazarus, the one whom God would help. Should remind us of another story, of, of a true story of something that Jesus did to help someone in need. Now, uh, I mentioned these, these dogs licking the sores. I need to just clear this up as well because I think for us, like a, as a modern audience, like this kind of sounds like a pretty cute detail in the story that all the luck is going against Lazarus, but hey, here comes some dogs to make it all better. I know when I was a teacher and like it was exam time at the school and everybody starts getting all stressed out and the students are panicking and like running away from the exam rooms, we call in the guidance counselors and, and they bring in the little puppy dogs, the therapy dogs, and, and let them lick all over the, the, the students and make them feel better. I think about my little girl and, and our puppy. I mean, like this is the picture I think we get of, of like, the dog licking Lazarus. This is not the picture that Jesus had in mind. Uh, more, be more like this. This is more the, the dogs that we're talking about. More scavengers, uh, guard dogs, wild, ravenous dogs. Um, and this is, this is just adding insult to injury to what's happening to Lazarus because if he wasn't already unclean enough by his sores, now these dirty dogs have been licking all over him. I mean, he is, he's a disgrace. He's even more isolated because the dogs have made him even more ceremonially unclean. But it is worth noting that at least they show him a little compassion, right? More so than the rich man, that at least they are there to lick his sores. So we see a contrast in their life, but how about in their death? What, what, what stands out about that? Look at verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, and being in torment, he lifted up his eyes. Notice Jesus makes clear to everyone listening to the story, death does not discriminate. The rich man and the poor man died. It's a certainty. It will happen. What happens beyond that is where we see differences. 
One is buried. So again, his status as one who's exalted before men, even in his death, is seen. He gets a, a proper burial. His body is embalmed. It's cared for more in death than Lazarus' body ever was cared for in life. But to what avail? To be sent to torment in Hades and in, in hell. And while he's buried, cared for by men, Lazarus is carried, cared for by God, carried straight to Abraham's side, straight to heaven. Pain is over. God has come through on the promise of his name, the one whom God has helped. He has helped him to heaven. Stark difference in what happens to these guys at the grave. One carried, one buried. Again, we see it again. What is exalted before men is an abomination to the Lord. The man that was celebrated now finds himself in Hades. The man that was cast aside is now with Abraham in heaven. So let's continue to see what happens after death. Verse 23, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. We see a, a reversal taking place here, right? A flip. This is like a bad case of Freaky Friday that one man who had just the worst of, of all lives is now celebrating in heaven with Abraham and, and the rich man who had it all is, is in torment. And he's just looking at this party happening and, and he's begging for some relief. A reversal seems to be taking place here. But we need to be clear that it's not just like a reversal for the sake of balance. Like if you're rich on earth, then you go to hell. If you have sores on earth and you're poor and at the gate, then you get to go to heaven. Like this is not what's taking place. We know that there's more to the, the gospel than that. And that being poor doesn't qualify you for heaven any more than being rich qualifies you for hell. I mean, just take note at who's speaking to the rich man in hell. It's Abraham, pretty wealthy guy, blessed by God as a chosen father of God's chosen people. And part of that promise and part of that, uh, that blessing was that he was wealthy. He was rich. He was, he was provided for richly by God. Matter of fact, I would assume that many of these Pharisees that Jesus is talking to probably would look to Abraham as the template to why they would assume that blessing and riches and wealth would be a sign of God's favor. Abraham's not in hell. So clearly, it's not just a matter of reversal that what, what you have here gets flipped when you go there. It's, it's more to it than that. Um, there's, there's, there's more that goes into what qualifies someone for heaven or hell. So we need to look at what happens to the rich man in hell and maybe that will help us discover why he's there because obviously it's not just because he's rich. We see that his riches have blinded him to a few things. First off, he calls out to Abraham, right? And he even calls him in the previous verse, Father Abraham, now, I'm sure there's at least one cynic in the room that's like, well, how did he know what Abraham looked like? I don't know about that. I, I don't know if there's name tags in heaven or if they have like a certain spot they have to stand. I don't think that was the point of the story. I think what Jesus was getting at here is that, that he acknowledged Father Abraham. The rich man knew enough about the religious system. He was just religious enough to acknowledge Abraham as a source of authority. But he was blind to what Abraham had taught and what the, those who came after Abraham had taught, what, what the story later on will say, Moses and the prophets, the 
teachings of the people. He was religious in that he recognized Abraham, but he was not religious enough to be obedient because he was blind. When we even see Abraham responding to him and saying, uh, calling him child. So even Abraham acknowledges, this guy's in. He was a Jewish person. He belonged as far as ethnicity, but not internally in his heart. He was not really a child of Abraham, or he would have been with Abraham by his side, just like the, the, the poor man Lazarus. But also, he doesn't just recognize Abraham, he also recognized Lazarus. He, he asks Abraham to send Lazarus, right, to, to give him a drop of water, which is pretty interesting to me that though he had refused to even offer a crumb to Lazarus, now he begs him just to give him a drop of water. So Lazarus was no stranger to him. Like you might could try to make a case for him that, well, he was, his house was so big and his gate was so tall, he couldn't even see Lazarus out there. Maybe he didn't even know he was there. He didn't realize the need was there. No, he knew him well enough to call him out through all the flames of hell to see him in heaven and recognize him. The rich man saw Lazarus, but he was blind to Lazarus's need and the fact that he had something that could have helped him. I mean, when we look back at those contrasts of his life and the overt exaggeration of Jesus to say, this is how rich he was. It wasn't just to show us he had a lot. It was to show us that he had enough to meet his needs and Lazarus's needs and then some. And yet he was blind to that. He was blind to it. We also notice uh, from him in hell, and we're going to see this as we continue to go into the story, that there was no real repentance once he got there. Some people would believe that, that maybe when you get to hell and you are punished for your sins, then maybe you'll turn the corner and, and you'll, you'll repent and, and, and things will get all better. And maybe then you can go to heaven. We don't see that happen in this story. We see no change of heart in the rich man. If there was a change of heart, he would be speaking to Lazarus, not Abraham. He'd be apologizing. He'd be pleading for forgiveness. But he still looks at Lazarus as someone that he can take advantage of. It's like some, some slave, some servant. He never gets even, like, refer, like, he never even gets addressed in the story. It's, hey, Abraham, go send Lazarus to go fetch me some water. No change of heart has happened for this rich man. No change of heart at all. And, and Jesus is here speaking to men who are just like the rich man speaking to them of the reality of hell. And it's a weighty thing to speak to them. And you might wonder, like, well, did he enjoy doing this? I mean, like, these, these Pharisees gave him such a hard time in his ministry. Like, maybe he's just putting them in their place. I don't think Jesus enjoyed what he was doing. Reminds me of a story of a, a church that lost their, their pastor, so they were replacing uh, the pastor, and they, and they had a search committee, and the committee would ask you know, guests to come in week after week to, to preach, and they were going to try and select one. And the first pastor comes in, and he preaches from Psalm 9, the wicked shall return to Sheol, another Old Testament word for hell, all the nations that forget God. And he preached his message and pounded his fist and left, and the board chair said, he's not our guy. No, I don't like him. A couple weeks later, uh, the next pastor comes through and he too preached the same scripture right from Psalm 9. The wicked shall return to Sheol and all the nations that forget God and pounded his fist and finished his sermon. And Lord Jesus said, that's our guy. We like him. Sign him up. And the, the search committee was, was so confused. They're like, well, what, what, do you, what do you mean? He preached the same message that the last guy 
did and you hated him. Why, why is he our guy? And he said, well, it's simple. The first man, when he said that the wicked are sent to hell, he, he gloated as he spoke. But this man preached with tears in his eyes and concern in his voice. And I have to imagine that's the way that Jesus was speaking to these rich Pharisees, warning them, open your eyes, see it, see Lazarus at your gate. We know that he took no pleasure in sending the rich man to hell. I mean, scripture makes that abundantly clear to us. Second Peter speaks to the fact that, that, the, that the Lord wishes for none to perish and all to come to repentance. And even in the Old Testament, in Ezekiel, we hear God say, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. There's no celebration here about the fact that the rich man has perished. This is a warning. This is a call to repentance. Don't end up like the rich man. I mean, I, you can hear it in his voice. And so voice 25, verse 25, but Abraham said, child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here and you're in anguish. So that phrase, receive your good things, reminds me of Jesus' teaching in the uh, Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. And he spoke of these religious practices, giving and praying and fasting, these three things. And in all three cases, he spoke of warnings about the, the, the Pharisees, the religious elites who did them publicly for the sake of attention and who didn't do it out of the generous of their heart to worship God and to show love for God and love for their neighbor. And three times when he, when he spoke on giving, when he spoke on fasting, when he spoke on praying, three times he would repeat the phrase, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. And you can hear that same word echo in the words of this rich man. You have already received your reward. You were blind to the purposes of my law. You were blind to the people who needed what you had been blessed with. You feasted sumptuously, and now you've received your reward. You, you can hear that in his voice. Well, things are only going to Well, before I get there, I wanna, this is not just a New Testament thing. God would speak the same way to the leaders of the Israelites. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, he, he referred to them as shepherds and his people as the sheep, the flocks, and he was calling them out for, for not leading them well. And this is what he said in Ezekiel 34, thus says the Lord God, I shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves. You heard Jesus say, feasting sumptuously daily, right? We hear that echoing here. Should not the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with the wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth. Hear the frustration of God towards the people that had been entrusted with the care of his people. They were blind. They hoarded it all to themselves feasted sumptuously while God's people were starving outside the gates. Lazarus starving outside the gate. And I love that he says it's my sheep, how personal that is of God to say. This is why Jesus named Lazarus my sheep. I see you, Lazarus. I will care for you. 
So what's to come of this rich man? Well, not only is he in hell, he's not going to get the relief he's looking for. Abraham goes on in verse 26, besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross there from here to us. The the Greek there in order that shows that the chasm was just not there by like happenstance. It's not like, well, here's heaven, here's hell. And sorry, man, there's just a chasm between us. We can't help you out. I mean, it makes it clear the chasm was put there on purpose to, as a block, a separation. There is no going back. There is no switching sides. And so because of this chasm now, Lazarus cannot do for the rich man what he had refused to do for Lazarus. Like all the rich man had to do was to walk through the gate, but now there's a chasm. No help. No rescue, no aid for this rich man. Folks, the the chasm for us is such a chilling reminder that there are a million ways for you to live your life, this tiny little speck of a life that you have. But there are only one of two ways for you to spend the eons of your infinite eternity. That's the warning of the chasm. That's what the chasm is screaming to us today. That though you may be mistaken because you live in a world where everything can be taken back, anything you buy on Amazon can be returned, any plate that comes out of the kitchen can be sent back in if you don't like what they put on it, any tattoo can be removed, a marriage can be annulled. If you got the new iOS update, you can even take back a text that you sent, but there's no take back on your life. There is no do-over. That's what the chasm says. What a warning. We have to get it right. There is no take back. Verse 27, and he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him, Lazarus, to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come in this place of torment. Maybe some concern here. Maybe he's finally starting to care for people a little bit and not be so selfish. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. This is how we notice finally, if we were at all curious, that the rich man has not repented. He has not changed his heart at all. He he still sees something to gain from from, uh, Lazarus in heaven. He says, no, Father. Abraham has told him, there isn't another way. Like you're stuck here and I've al- God has already provided plenty of means for people to have, have what they need to be saved. He's provided Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And what does the rich man say? He says, no, father. So he acknowledges by saying, father, the authority of Abraham, but he doesn't submit to it. No, his heart is still hard. And don't you also hear what he's saying? It's almost an indictment against God. God, look what happened to me. You didn't provide enough for me to make it to heaven. So at least go warn my my family. What nerve he has to speak that way to God. Abraham says, we gave you Moses and the prophets, and we can add to that the ministry of Jesus and the crucifixion and the resurrection and the teachings of the epistles and the book of Revelation. And yet still we ask for something else, another sign. 
Give me something else. And then I'll repent. I need to see a little bit more, God. Abraham says, you had enough. And even if we were to send someone back from the grave, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. It's interesting. He's asking to raise Lazarus from the dead. And just one book over in the book of John, Jesus would do just that. He would raise Lazarus from the dead. Mary and Martha's brother, right, who died, for, was dead four days, he raised him from the dead. Was that a good enough sign for the Pharisees to repent? No. He got death threats for it. And then later on, he would do the same thing to himself. He would allow himself to be killed. And then Jesus would raise himself from the dead. Was that a good enough sign? Abraham is speaking about our own unwillingness to accept what's already been provided for us. Enough has been said. Enough has been done. Repent. We must turn. We must repent. I love the way that William Tyndale puts it. If a man cannot be humane with the Old Testament in his hand, speaking directly about the rich man here, and Lazarus on his doorstep, nothing, neither a visit from the other world nor a revelation of the horrors of hell will teach him otherwise. Scripture is sufficient. What we have in this book is enough to convict us of our sins and show us a need, our need for a savior. And the needs right out our door, the Lazarus right at our gate is enough to convict us of what it means to live a life of service towards that. And if that's not enough, well, no visitor from hell and no resurrected Lazarus will be enough. It's final. Pretty stern warning from Jesus in this story. So what are we to do with this? How, how do we react to this? Well, there's two ways. I'd say first, if, if you're here today and you'd say, well, I, I am like the rich man, I, I, I would probably be surprised to find myself in hell if I died today. I, I have not bent a knee to the Almighty. I see no care for the needy at my gate. I, I do not have supreme love for God, my creator. I have not confessed my sin to him. I, I haven't trusted my life with him. Then my urge to you and the urge of the chasm is to, let today be the day that you repent. Let today be the day that you say, I've had enough. Let today be the day that you surrender your life to Jesus. The one who saw you covered in sores outside his gate and left the comfort of heaven to rescue you. Receive that gift today. Speak to someone today. One of the counselors that will be over on the side at the, at the fifth song or one of our pastors or the friend that invited you to church today. Speak to someone today. Let today be the day that you enter a relationship with Jesus. But for the rest of us, if you are already a part of the family of God, but maybe perhaps you feel just a singe of conviction at what we see taking place here. You see the ways that you have been made so wealthy. What do we do? What, what's there here for us? Well, there's surely a call for action. I think of what Paul says in the book of 1 Corinthians. He says, how are we to be regarded? What does it mean for us to be followers of Jesus? Well, he gives us two things. We are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. And if we're gonna be stewards, we must be found Faithful, And as you look at that first phrase there, servants of Christ, it's easy to wonder like, well, how do we serve Christ? What acts of service can I offer to a person who's not here? He's in heaven. How do I serve him while I'm here on earth? And I think of what he said to his disciples in Matthew 25 as he spoke of the final judgment. 
as he's dividing up his people and, and those who are not his people. And, and he, he gives them this. He says, when I was thirsty, you gave me a drink. When I was hungry, you gave me food. When I was naked, you clothed me. When I was alone, you comforted me. And they were confused and they said, well, when did we ever see you in any of those conditions and do anything to help you? And Jesus said very clearly to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, as you served Lazarus, you did it unto me. We serve Christ as we meet the needs of those who are at our gate. It's one of the key ways we serve him. And they are at our gate. Lazarus is right at our gate, all around us. And we have been richly blessed with the gifts needed to meet his need. He says, serve Christ. But he also says to be a steward of the mysteries of God. What what are the mysteries of God? I'll tell you the best one. The mystery of God that most confuses and perplexes me is that a holy and righteous God would look at a wretched human race and say, I think I should send my son to them to live a spotless life and to offer himself as a sacrifice on the cross so that anyone who puts their faith in him would be covered by his blood, sins forgiven, and enter into a relationship with with him and an eternity with him at Abraham's side in heaven. That's pretty mysterious to me. And it's this mystery that God has said, you are called to steward that ministry, that mystery. And there are billions today Billions of Lazaruses today who have no idea. They're scratching their heads over this mystery. Will you share with them? Will you give that to them? Jesus has so lovingly broken his body like bread and handed it to us so that we can feast on it. Will we be unwilling to share the crumbs with someone else? This is what it means to steward the mystery of God. And this is the greatest need we can meet. Yes, let's bandage their wounds and give them water and food and care for them. But if we don't give them the mystery of God, the gospel, we've missed it. We must give them that. This is what it means to be a faithful follower of God. And this is what our church is doing. it's, It's crazy. I've only been on staff for a month, but I've been blown away by the things that people in our church are doing to reach Lazarus at the gate. Just a week ago, I had the opportunity to go over to the Spartanburg Rescue Mission that was run by Miracle Hill and to get to tour their men's facility where they house 68 men for long-term care and, and feed them and nourish them and care for them and daily, seven days a week, disciple them. And they have a transition house. They can house 10 men that really get them employed and on their feet and back into society, caring for their physical needs and stewarding the mysteries of God by sharing the gospel with them, discipling them. And that's less than two miles down the road. A couple days ago, I also was able to go and see the facility of PS I Love You, another one of our church partners. People in this church help that out serving foster kids and their families here in Spartanburg. And I was stunned to hear that there are enough churches in the state of South Carolina that if each church took one foster child, so one family out of each church said, we'll take a foster child, and the church would wrap their arms around that family. If that happened, there would be no such thing 
as a foster child in South Carolina. Lazarus is right at our gate. And just three nights ago, I was blown away to go to the Set Free Alliance Gala in Greenville and hear the report of what God is doing in India and Africa as our own people serve to plant churches in dark places and to provide clean water through wells and mobile medical clinics and set children free from slavery. It's incredible what they're doing. You won't believe these facts. And just in case you're wondering if they've been busy, this is what they've been up to. 9,531 slaves rescued. 9,962 have been prevented from entering into slavery or into a brothel because of their ministry. 12,509 uh, have been served through mobile medical clinics. So the sores of Lazarus have been cared for. And more importantly, through those medical clinics, 1,163 people entered into a relationship with Jesus because someone other than the dogs was willing to lick their sores. This is what happens when the church takes the riches that God has blessed us with and looks out the gate. And 18,530 new churches are, have popped up all over India and Africa thanks to Set Free. It's just a few of the many ministries that we're about here at Hope Point. I could go on and on. I'd be here all day and tell you what we're doing to care for Lazarus in our world. But what about us? Let's do something. Let's busy ourselves with finding need and meeting need, with stewarding the message of the gospel to those who've never heard it. Give, serve, go to some of these places. This is the, this is the call that Jesus has given the rich. And whether you think you are or not, you are the rich. If your pockets aren't deep, but you own one of these, you are rich. And we come in here week after week and feast on this book. And get five songs of encouragement and worship to the Lord. Let's share some of that with somebody. Let's give that to someone else. Let's not be those who hoard it all to ourselves. The master expects us to be faithful with what he has entrusted to us and Lazarus needs what we have. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from Hope Point Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. If you would like to learn more about us or give to this ministry, please go to our website at hopepoint.org. We hope you can join us again next week.